Our call to worship this morning comes from the book of Lamentations. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks for him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Today is All Saints Day for those who like to keep the liturgical calendar. And for those who don't, it's still All Saints Day. It's just perhaps what we understand by a saint, whether they're official or unofficial So that will be picked up in some of the songs and themes we share this morning. And we're going to start with a lovely hymn of praise. I come with joy, a child of God. The words are on the sheet and will also appear on the screen behind me. And now a prayer for All Saints Day, which I've taken from a resource called the Book of a Thousand Prayers. And at the end of that, we will join together in the Lord's Prayer, and as is our custom and practice here, we say that in our own first language and the verse with which we are familiar. So let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. We thank you, O God, for the saints of all ages. For those who in times of darkness kept the lamp of faith burning. For the great souls who saw visions of a larger truth and dared to declare it. For the multitude of quiet and gracious souls whose presence have purified and sanctified the world. And for those we knew and loved who have passed from this earthly fellowship into the fuller light of life with you. 
on this All Saints Day, we gather for worship, recalling that in Scripture the word simply means those who are following the way of Christ. Ordinary people, just like us, who face the challenges of daily life in a world that is marvellous and mysterious, complicated and confusing. We thank you for those who founded this church here at Hilthead, men and women who had a vision to take the good news to what was then the very edge of the city, building these premises in what was a largely empty space. We thank you for those who went out from here to plant new congregations and to serve overseas as missionaries, eager to continue the work of the gospel. And we thank you for each person here today, those for whom this is a regular place of worship and those just passing through. Each of us part of the worldwide church, each in some mysterious way united in the communions of saints, the great crowd of witnesses beyond time, place, and all held together in your redemptive love. And so as we approach you in prayer, we join in the words that have been passed down to us through nearly 2,000 years, the words Jesus offered as a pattern for prayer to those who asked him, how do we pray? As we say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.
Now, I'm going to give my age away here, but I'm going to start by asking off, asking if anybody apart from me remembers a television program called Mary, Mungo and Mitch. Hurrah! It's not just me, and it's not just people younger than me or my age. That's fantastic. Well, that's kind of a thing that I've had in my mind since I, I moved to Glasgow when I discovered there were three cathedrals in Glasgow. Actually, there are four cathedrals in Glasgow. Um, and we're going to look a little bit at the saints and those cathedrals. So it's actually Mary, Mungo, Andrew, and Luke. We have to have St. Paul to get midge, I think, because Paul means small. But these are the four saints. These are the icons of the four saints for the churches in Glasgow. Does anybody know what an icon is, what the purpose of an icon is? And you can tell me on your computer as well as in a religious sense, because there's kind of a connection. Anybody know what an icon is on a computer? Bet you all use them. Okay, so an icon on a computer is one of those little pictures that you double-click on if you've got an old, sufficiently old-fashioned computer, and it opens up the thing you want to do. It's a kind of a window to the thing that you want to see. And icons of saints are understood by those who use them, not just as pictures, but as windows through which you, you glimpse something of the saints, certainly, but beyond that, you glimpse something of God. So it points beyond itself. It's not just a nice picture. But these are the four saints of the four cathedrals in Glasgow. So we're going to start uh, with the oldest. Can anybody tell me which one that is? That's St. Mungo's Cathedral or St. Kentigern, if you want to give him his alternative name, which I think is probably Welsh, uh, Welsh Latin, I think, in origin. This is um, a Church of Scotland cathedral. It's a, quite a rare thing. It doesn't quite work in the way other cathedrals do. But originally, it would have been a Roman Catholic cathedral. And the first stone, does anybody know who laid the first stone of that cathedral? This is really kind of for the older grown-ups, this question. Okay, well, I've done my research this week. It was Saint David, sorry, King David, not Saint David, King David the first. Not the one in the Bible, though it probably feels like it was as long ago as that. It was in 1136, so a thousand years ago, near enough. And the building we've got here goes back to 1197. It was a Roman Catholic cathedral until the Protestant Reformation and had a bishop until 1689. And since then, it's had ministers in what would eventually become the Church of Scotland. So St. Mungo, or Kentigern, is the patron saint of Glasgow. Now, does anybody know anything about him apart from the myth about fishes and bells and things? Anybody know what he did? Anybody? No? It's interesting. It's, we, all know, we all think we do, but we don't. I didn't. He was a bishop. Um, he was an evangelist. And he died in the early 7th century. Um, he had a difficult time in Scotland and went off to Wales for a bit and then came back. But he is the patron saint of Glasgow. His saint's day is the 13th of January. Is that anybody's birthday? So we've got no, we've got no, no secret mungos amongst us. And do you know what he's the patron saint of or against? Apart from Glasgow. Okay, he's a patron saint of salmon. And he's the patron saint against bullies. I think it's the first time I've come across somebody who was a patron saint against something. So that, I thought that was interesting. So that's St. Mungo. 
Which one is this of the four cathedrals? Anybody know? Some people may have come past it this morning. Yeah, that's St. Mary's. And that goes, anyone know how far back that goes as a, as a church of people? Any ideas? Gosh, I feel like a really boring teacher this morning. Okay, it goes back to 1869. Sorry, 1689. What happened in 1689? Can anyone remember? That was when you stopped having a bishop at St. Mungo's. Okay, so when St. Mungo's changed at the time of the Reformation, some of the people went and formed a congregation that would become, in due course, St. Mary's. Uh, in 1869. They didn't get their own building until 1825, so just over 200 years ago, um, in Renfield Street. And in 1871, Sir George Gilbert Scott began to build this building, which was opened in 1884. So it's roughly the same age as our building. Uh, it became a cathedral in 1908 when the Glasgow diocese, or the diocese of which it's the cathedral, um, is, was created. So which St. Mary do you think this one might be dedicated to? Because there's lots of St. Mary's. So which one do you think it might be? Have a guess. I won't shout at you if you get it wrong. Yeah, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Thank you. Does anybody know what her, her festival day is? She has a, a festival day. It's the 1st of January. So another January saint. And she has no, she's not the patron saint of anything specific so some people say she's the patron saint of everything. And that kind of fits because she's a woman, really, doesn't it? You just have to do everything. Okay. Anybody know which one this cathedral is? Yeah, this is St. Andrew's Cathedral. And does anybody know which tradi- Christian tradition that one is? Yeah, that's the Roman Catholic Cathedral. That was if founded in 1814... And the first Mass was celebrated in 1816. So it actually took them two years, presumably, to get a priest to come along and do the Mass for them. Um, in 1878, the first, Catholic, sorry, the first Scottish Roman Catholic Archbishop since the Reformation was appointed. So around the time this church was being founded, this church had its first bishop. Um, and it became an archdiocese and then a metropolitan diocese uh, in 1947. So what do we know about St. Andrew then? Anything we know about St. Andrew at all? Okay, allegedly his bones, or at least one of them, was taken to St. Andrew's, but it was a pig bone really. (laughs) But anyway, there was a tradition that one of his bones was taken to St. Andrew's, which is up in the north of Scotland. What else do we know about St. Andrew at all? Yeah, patron saint of Scotland. I didn't know Greece, but he's also patron saint of Russia. So maybe he's got three churches, three countries. Yep, Greece, yep. See, I don't know everything, I just researched it. Yep, patron saint of Scotland, of Greece apparently, and also apparently of Russia. Patron saint of fishermen. Does anybody know what his saint's day is? And if you can't all tell me that one, well, frankly, I'm going home. So Andrew's day is 30th of November. Yeah. Okay, and lastly, which cathedral is this one? Yeah, this is St. Luke's Cathedral. And what tradition is St. Luke's Cathedral? Yeah, that's the Greek Orthodox Church. 
And that congregation was established in Glasgow in 1953. So that's about the time the Queen came to the throne, if my arithmetic is correct. And they moved to this building in 1963. So that was when I was basically naught, coming up to one, and the year that Andrew was born, um, just to kind of embarrass him, because Andrew's a year younger than me. And it was made into a cathedral in 1970. And it's dedicated to St. Luke. So what do we know about St. Luke? Anything? Doctor, yeah, he's a patron saint of physicians and surgeons. He's also the patron saint of artists and writers, apparently, so he's a busy chap. Um, He's the one who we we attribute the gospel with his name to it, and he travelled with the Apostle Paul. His saint's day is the 18th of October, and so he's the fourth one. So four cathedrals in Glasgow. I don't think there's any other town or city in these islands that has four cathedrals. The nearest I could find was Liverpool that has two. So I think we've, we've kind of got the most cathedrals in the British Isles. But what about us? We don't do cathedrals. We don't do bishops. Each congregation is on its own and works out together how to live out its faith and witness. We're part of the Baptist Union of Scotland. We're also part of the Baptist Union of Great Britain because we're just a bit odd like that. But we don't have special saints or special saints' days. There are a few Baptist churches that have saints' names in their titles because they're in St. Andrew's or they're in the St. Mary's or St. George's region of Norwich or Bristol. But we don't have saints. Or do we? Because a saint is really just somebody who's trying to follow Jesus. So I think we have a St. Bonnie and a St. Freya and a St. Sarah and a St. Nancy and a St. Fiona and a St. Paul and another St. Paul and a St. Grace and a St. Margaret and a St. Gavin and a a St. Fergus and a St. Louis and, and so on and so forth. Everybody here is a saint of God, not an official one with a halo around your head and strange pictures on the wall. Everybody who wants to follow Jesus and says, yeah, I'm going to do my best with that, is a saint of God. And so we're going to sing the song about that that I learned when I was at primary school, and hopefully I've got the right words for this one. I sing a song of the saints of God, patient and brave and true. Let's stand if we can as we sing together.
Our scripture reading this morning is a selection of extracts from the Gospels. And when they had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the Skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others and he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now if he wants to, for he said, I am God's son. The bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the criminals who was hanging there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Meanwhile, Standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. 
when Jesus had received the wine, he said, It is finished. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for the spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Back in the summer of 2001, I spent two weeks at St Columba's Hospice in Edinburgh taking part in a hospice chaplaincy course. And at the end of our time there, we were each required to make a presentation sharing a theological reflection that had arisen from that experience. I chose to reflect on the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross from the perspective of accompanying a person who's dying. A few years later, in my first pastorate, the same set of readings offered a basis for Reflections for Remembrance Sunday, allowing them to pose questions and to prompt exploration around ideas of armed conflict and its human consequences. And today we're going to approach these same sayings within the broad framework of all saints and all souls, the days at the start of November when, at least in times past, the churches would focus their thoughts very much on those who'd gone before them, those who are formally recognised as saints, and those we have loved whose earthly lives have ended. To reflect on the sayings in this way is an invitation to look deeply into our own hearts and to ponder our own experiences, whether they are recent, acute, and raw, or distant, dull, and largely assimilated. This is not without risk. To reconnect with ideas and emotions we thought we had moved beyond. But yet it has a potential, I think, for catharsis, for cleansing and release, and for refreshing. So... This sermon does come with a health warning, and that is just to listen to your own inner responses, however you're feeling. 
And just to remember that that might not be the same as the person sitting next to you. We each of us need to be kind and gentle to ourselves and also to each other. And whilst all saints and all souls traditionally focus on physical death, I think we are wise to keep in mind that throughout our lives are experiences that are sometimes referred to as little deaths, which can be every bit as significant for those involved. Life-threatening or life-changing medical conditions, accident or traumatic injury, redundancy or termination of employment, failure to achieve the necessary qualifications to pursue a career or to follow our ambitions, the breakdown of a relationship, and many, many more. Unchosen, unwanted, unchangeable, these experiences can be every bit as significant and maybe more for those involved as a physical death. And I think that these too can be reflected upon through dialogue with the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. There is no definitive order for the sayings. None of them is found in all four Gospels. And yet it is possible to arrange them in ways that give us a broadly coherent flow through the experience of Jesus and those who are around him in the last hours of his life. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to work through the sayings one at a time with a reasonably brief reflection on each. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Actually, at one level, they know fine well what they're doing. They're doing their job. They're carrying out an edict to execute another criminal. And at another level, they haven't got a clue. They don't know anything about the men that they're taking out to execute. They don't know the stories of these men, and they don't know what will be the human impact of what takes place on this day. The doctor who has to break bad news to a patient or their family. The manager who signs a redundancy notice. The teacher who marks a piece of work and concludes it's not of sufficient standard to pass. These people have jobs to do. And they do their jobs to the best of their ability. And for the most part anyway, these are people who are caring and compassionate and kind. But they do not. And they cannot know the impact of their actions on those affected. When bad stuff happens, somebody has to be the bearer of bad news. Someone has to enact the decisions other people have made. Someone has to pass on the uncomfortable truths. And maybe this saying is a reminder to us at a point when we're able to step back from the immediacy of our own shock, horror, anger or other emotion that these are people too. That they cannot know the impact of their words or actions for us as individuals. 
and the reminder for us that we can never fully know the impact of our words or our actions on other people. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry of dereliction expresses a sense of isolation and abandonment that resonates with many people at their lowest, saddest and most fearful moments. Just at the moment when we need someone to be there and make it all right, or at least to reassure us that we will get through this, it seems that the universe is cold and empty and uncaring. God may be silent or even seem to be absent. Family and friends who we've been utterly convinced would be supportive seem to disappear like snow off a dike or to say or to do the very wrong thing. Jesus knows that aloneness as he hangs there, physically stripped naked, devoid of all dignity and gawped at by strangers by friends and by family. Here too, though, we find permission to ask the why question. Not a mandate that we must ask why or that we should ask why because it's not inevitable that we will ask why. But the assurance that because we are Christians we don't just have to smile sweetly at the bad stuff that happens and Pretend everything's okay when it's not. It is fine. It is even modelled by Jesus to have questions and to voice them out loud. Jesus asked God, why? Why is this happening to me? And so, if for us that is helpful, may we. Though it comes with a warning that, like Jesus we may not discern a reply in the voice of God. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Three men hang on crosses, each of them under sentence of death. And it's likely that just beyond our focus are others, some who may have been there for several days already, slowly dying of hunger, dehydration, and asphyxiation. But we see three men, Jesus and one either side. And one of them is still angry. He doesn't want to die, and frankly, why should he? So he vents his rage at the person nearest him, Jesus. The other man seems to be reconciled to his fate. Death is inevitable. And yet, even in that acceptance, we detect a deep human need. He wants to be remembered. He needs his life to matter, to count for something. And so he asks Jesus to remember him. 
I have no doubt whatsoever that there is a place for anger in processing bad stuff, a need to name injustice for what it is, a need to rage at all that is wrong, a need to say this is unjust, this is unfair, this isn't right. But if that's as far as we get and no further, then like the bad thief, we risk becoming bitter, lashing out to other people whilst inwardly shriveling and becoming stuck in a very bad place. And acceptance of the inevitable need not be unquestioning fatalism. The so-called good thief still needed to make some sense of his life. He still needed to find or make some meaning. And isn't that true for us? Don't we need to try and make sense of what's going on for us? And for this thief, he finds a degree of resolution. In fact, the promise of Jesus is way beyond his wildest imaginings. He just wants to be remembered. And Jesus says today you'll be with me in paradise. And having that reassurance that all will be well, he can now die at peace with himself. It can be a good death, even though a horrendous one. Now, we don't always get such amazing, bold reassurances in our own places of pain. That would be nice, but that's not how it works, is it? But maybe as we consider the two thieves there's something we can think about as we respond to our own experiences of life's events and struggles. Perhaps we have anger we need to express or process. Perhaps we have stuckness that needs to be released. Perhaps we yearn for meaning and to think that our lives matter. Or perhaps we have found resolution. Woman, Here is your son. Here is your mother. This seems to me an especially poignant and tender scene. Jesus' mother stands at the foot of the cross, a helpless onlooker, watching her firstborn son, the one she suckled at her own breast, die a criminal's death. And next to her stands the beloved disciple, Equally impotent. There's nothing they can do. And in amidst all the noise and nonsense that's going on around him, Jesus looks down and sees two people he loves dearly and he is totally powerless to do anything. Does that resonate with us at all? The sick feeling as we look at our children or at our parents or other relatives, knowing that their dreams, as well as our own, now lie in tatters. That inability to make it right, the impossibility of assuring our children that daddy will get better, or that mummy will come back, or our friend that there will be another job out there, or the person whose dreams are in pieces that go on, try again next time, next time it will work out. Jesus knows that sense of powerlessness. And yet, even in that helplessness, he takes a tiny bit of control. He can't make it right. He can't. 
but he can try to make it a little bit less awful. In his final hours, Jesus does what he can to make provision for those closest to him, to set his affairs in order. Tidying up loose ends, making our peace with other people, doing what we can to ensure that the future for those we love will not just be survivable, but have the potential for joy. Making an ending as good as possible without denying its reality. Maybe that, for us, brings a little bit of resolution, a little bit of relief or release. I thirst. As the end draws near for Jesus, he is utterly helpless. He can't even fulfill his own most basic needs. His parched lips, his dry mouth, the tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth, he forms the words, pleading for relief. And in a moment of compassion, a nearby soldier offers him a sponge soaked in wine vinegar. Sometimes what's needed isn't more words or more reflection. Sometimes, in fact, there is nothing practically that can be done. The loved one in the hospice is having a syringe driver administering morphine and we sit and wait. The redundancy pay, such as it was, is spent and now we're forced to get onto the benefits queue, go to the food bank, rely on handouts. Now exhausted, now dependent on others, we need the equivalent of that wine-soaked sponge. Someone, perhaps, who can press a cooling cloth to a fevered brow. Perhaps somebody who can put an arm around our shoulder. Or somebody who will just come alongside and share the darkness. Just be there. Or perhaps we find ourselves in the role of a soldier, helpless in a different way. He can't fix things, but can still offer compassion. Sometimes that is all we can do, and yet it is all that is needful of us to do. It is finished. Often heard as a cry of triumph, the Greek word here translates literally as it is accomplished, or the end has been reached. We have a word here that carries a sense of the end both as an inevitability and as a goal, the destination to which all this has been leading. If I'm honest, I prefer an ambiguous reading of the saying. I find it helpful that it can, can convey at the same time a sense of, well, that's it, it's all over, as well as That's it. It's all completed. I like as well that there's an almost dispassionate reading of it. Just, that's it. It's done. Death, especially, but other difficult experiences as well, can invoke each of these responses in us simultaneously. There can be a sense of failure or defeat at the same time as a sense of relief and release 
in the face of what for other people outside is, is just a fact. And I think the ambiguity of the language gives us permission to react in the way that's right for us. That whilst there are more or less healthy or helpful responses, there is no one single correct way of facing and working through loss or grief or disappointment or disaster. What's right for me might not be right for you. What's right for one situation may not work in another. And all of that is okay. It also gives us a hope that one day the grief and the sorrow will be completed, finished, the work done, release found. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus has done his grief work. He's forgiven those whose attitudes and actions led to this point. He's recognized and expressed his isolation. He's asked his why question. He's listened to dying men who are angry about their lot and who are accepting of their lot, helping one of them at least to find some peace. He's made provision for his mother and a young man he loves. He's experienced compassion from a Gentile soldier and reached his own place of completion. And now he commends himself to the safekeeping of God, at peace with himself and at peace with God. He's now ready to face his death. Our experiences are our experiences. Nobody can tell us how we should feel or what we should do. And yet, in these words of Jesus, we might find resonance somewhere. We might find a hint of hope or encouragement. We may even find a little challenge. But for me, these last words of Jesus, the very last ones he speaks, have the sense of a bedtime prayer just before sleep that promises promise and comfort. We can't know what tomorrow will bring, but we can commit ourselves and those that we love into the safekeeping hands of God. And do you know what? Actually, in the end, that is all we can do. And actually, in the end, that's what Christian hope is all about that God's promises can be trusted and in the end all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. Or in my less poetic version, it'll be okay. We sing again. My song is love unknown.
and we come to God in prayer. And we're not going to use lots of words this morning. I'm going to offer us some headings and we will use a silence to reflect or to bring to God whatever is on our hearts and our minds. So let's pray to God together. In Jesus, we see God revealed. A God who can experience anger. And a God who can experience pain. A God who cares about the details of the lives of frail human beings. And a God who is willing to draw into God's own very being the pain, the hurt, that evil and sin create for others. This is too much for us to understand, and yet we trust it is so. And so we begin our prayers with ourselves. We who can experience the whole range of human emotions... We whose lives are a mixture of joy and sorrow, challenge and struggle. And we bring our needs and our feelings to the one who understands. We think of those who are close to us, those physically close to us at this moment, friends and strangers, but also those who are close to us emotionally, whoever that may be, family, friends, colleagues. We know something of their lives and the degree will vary but we cannot know everything. And so we bring to God the needs as we understand them of those we love. And beyond ourselves and beyond those we know and love are those we know about and care about. The stories in the news that touch our hearts or challenge our thoughts. The peoples and places and situations that prompt us to want you to do something and yet know that often the way you work is through getting us to do something. 
And so we bring those situations, places and people to you now. God, whom Jesus called Father, yet more than Father and Mother combined to us, our perfect, eternal parent, into your safe hands we commit ourselves and all those for whom we have prayed. In the name of Christ. Amen. pray together. With the saints and the angels, we adore you, almighty God. And just as those who went before us offered you their best, so we bring these our offerings to continue the work of sharing the story of Jesus with all who will hear.
and to extend his kingdom in this place and beyond. Amen. We sing again as we prepare to meet around the Lord's table. It's number 445 in the hymn book. We are only singing the first four verses of that hymn. In the splendor of cathedrals and in the simplicity of mission halls, at international gatherings of the great and good and at the bedside of those who are sick or dying, in the tranquility of a retreat house and in the theater of war. For around 2,000 years, saints official and saints in the making have paused to remember and to celebrate a mystery, a mystery known variously as the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the Mass, the Sacrament, Holy Communion. Different emphases, Different understandings, different rituals and rites, and yet one common inspiration and one shared mystery. That in broken bread and poured out wine, we remember all that God in Christ achieves for us. And we find ourselves united across time and space. All saints. All souls, 
all who try to follow Jesus. So come, for all are welcome here. And for the greater part of 2,000 years, people have listened to the same words recorded in the first letter to the church at Corinth by the Apostle Paul. And so in that tradition will we. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the great Eucharistic prayers of the liturgical traditions and in the extempore prayers of post-Reformation churches, is a common recognition that we need to express our gratitude to God for the ordinary elements of bread and wine and for the significance we understand them to convey. And so we join our prayers with those of countless others. Blessed are you, God of all creation, who brings forth grain from the earth and fruit from the vine. Through your generosity, we have this bread and this wine, produce of the earth and work of human hands. For all they are, for all they represent, and for all they mean to us, we offer our thanks and praise. Amen. And so Jesus, with his friends gathered in an upper room, in the context of a meal, took bread and he broke it. And he said, just as this bread is broken, my body will also be broken. Whenever you eat bread, remember me. We will eat the bread as we receive. At the end of the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine. And he said something like this. He said, there's now a new relationship between creation and God. A new promise from God to all of you and all who will come after you. And though it's hard to understand, the seal of this covenant, the proof of God's love, will be made in my blood. 
And when you drink wine, wine of joy and gladness, I want you to remember that. And in that mystery of solemnity and delight, carry on telling the story until the day that all is fulfilled in my new kingdom. We will retain the glasses as we receive them and then we will drink together. talk sometimes in church about the communion of saints and the great cloud of witnesses, or the great crowd of witnesses, of whom we are a part. Just before we drink, I want to invite you just for a moment to think perhaps of the first time you took communion, where you were, who was sitting with you. Because in this act, we reunite with those people and those places. Or perhaps you have a loved one who you are remembering at this All Saints, All Souls Tide. Or a loved one who has recently departed this life. And you remember times when you shared communion with them. Because the mystery is, they're sharing it with us. We drink in faith and with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for all that we have shared here. Thank you for our place in the communion of your saints, numbered among those countless millions who are seeking to follow Jesus. Strengthen us now for our continual discipleship, we pray in his precious name. Amen.
the blessing of the God of Mungo, Mary, Andrew, Luke, and all the saints, the blessing of Christ the Son of God, and the blessing of the Spirit of God, be upon us and upon all creation now and always. Thank you.